Did you know that it takes about 650 gallons of water to manufacture a single cotton t-shirt? This is the Levers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Stacy Flynn, founder and CEO of Evernew. It's a textile innovation company looking to take recycled fiber from discarded clothes and give it a new life. Over the course of our conversation, I asked, how do clothes get from the farm to the retail store? How do you innovate in conservative industries? And where does one start when trying to build new system solutions? So let's listen to how a career that started in fashion and fabrics is now working on recycling and repurposing. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for joining us in the Lovers for Change podcast. It's great to have you today. Thanks, Jimmy. It's nice to be here. So I wanted to start off with a Nelson Mandela quote, which is quitting is leading to. And you have been working on Evernew for such a long time. What keeps you committed to your North Star? (laughs) That's a great question. This whole journey for me got started back in 2010. And this year, actually, being 2020, is kind of the 10-year mark. So I am really thinking a lot about this in terms of my recommitment to the mission in 2010, when I came to, to realize what my work was doing in the world and how people were living as a result of that work, I decided that that was not how the story ends. And, you know, I stayed focused on, like, if one person, you know, even though I'm, I'm not responsible for all of the damage, but if one person can do so much damage completely unintentionally, what can the same person do to... Uh, turn things around. So I've stayed committed to that North Star in terms of really focusing on what can the individual do and then how do you find the right people to expand your reach. Yeah, you started your career in fashion and fabric. So tell us a little bit about that aha moment of yours that got you to start (laughs) Evernew. Yeah, it was in China in 2010 and I was working for a company making clothes out of recycled plastic waste. And it was a really cool job because at that time you could buy polar fleece and other other fabrics that weren't as refined as, you know, I wanted to know, could I make a men's hundred doubles dress shirt? Would a man even know that that shirt was made from waste? And better yet, could we take that shirt when the man is done with it and break it down, repolymerize it and turn it into something else? So I started to really get excited about what was possible and this company, the startup sent me to China to find sources of manufacturing. And I went into the subcontracted areas for the first time. I'd been all over China many times before this trip, but on this trip, I really saw how we get to low price. And what did that do for you? (laughs) Well, you know, in simple terms, I, it broke my heart because I, had developed, you know, working for DuPont, Target, Eddie Bauer, I had developed so much pride at the scale at which I had operated in the world. And all of a sudden that pride turned to something else. And I wasn't proud of of my participation in the way I had been. So, you know, I just decided that if I'm going to take this on, I needed more training. And that's when I went back to grad school. And that was a Bainbridge Graduate Institute, where we met many years ago. Yep. 
So when did you realize that you not only owned the problem, but you also owned the solution? I didn't know I owned the solution. I, all I knew was that I was pissed and that I was incredibly well-trained. And, you know, that's really what it came down to was if from an engineering mindset, if you can cause the problem, certainly you can reverse engineer and find and basically hack it and create something different. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to reverse engineer the problem to find solutions that were powerful enough to actually grow and scale in a different way. So that that was what my determination was, was to reverse some of the trajectory. And so then what did you find? That's where you met your co-founders, I think, with some of the technologies you're working on today. Yeah. So Christo and I actually met at Target. We both worked at Target together. So when I started at BGI, I spent the first year really doing research while I was also going to grad school. I basically came up with this thesis that 90% of all clothing in the world is made from either polyester or cotton. Both fibers require tremendous amounts of natural resources. And then as subject matter experts, people like me, we take these fibers, we spin them into yarn, we knit, weave, dye, print, finish, cut and sew garments that we sell to every human on the planet. And then we throw away about 50 million tons of clothing waste away every year. So the bookends were the problem, the resource extraction and the waste. So I came up with this idea, if we could take the waste depolymerize it and repolymerize it back into new fiber, it would be the linchpin of impact for the system and it would allow the system to grow. So that was kind of what I had stumbled upon. And when I presented this research to the textile engineers that I knew and the textile chemists that I knew, I mean, I was laughed out of universities for having this idea. No one had ever done it, couldn't be done. How dare you propose to break a cardinal rule? get out of here kind of thing. What is your framework for decision-making? I have three things that I consider when I'm, when I'm making decisions. And the first thing from my perspective is the customer is always king. Everything we do has to be focused on who's going to buy it. How are they going to relate to it? What are they going to do with it? What is their experience? So You know, this is also the work of Carol Sanford, like really thinking through who are you actually selling to? It's not a transaction. It's the system. The second is, you know, really focusing on what are their goals? What are their business objectives? If they trust me enough to convey that level of information, I can tailor my approach So I'm serving up customized solutions to solve their problems and meet their objectives. And then I'd say the third thing that I consider in the decision-making framework is one of the big fears that a lot of large industrial complexes have in the textile and apparel space is that innovation is going to come in and render all of my property, plant, and equipment obsolete. And so they have a fear of innovation. These are low-margin conservative industries and they have a natural aversion to innovation because it means they have to learn something different and they may have to buy new equipment, which both are are really challenging for these constituents. So our entry point with our partners is always, you know, let's understand what kind of equipment you have. Let's find solutions that work within that equipment. 
Let's use the existing intelligence and create really customized solutions that work within your existing infrastructure. I call it using all parts of the buffalo, but you don't want innovation to throw the baby out with the bathwater as an entry point. Now, eventually, we're going to have to modernize and we're going to have to decommission some of this stuff. But it's going to be a lot easier if I show them there's a solid business case to do so. That's right. And so to paraphrase, there's the customer is always king. Figure out what the outcomes are that the customer cares about and then really understand their context and meet them where they are. So that way you can work with them instead of have the feel like it's works against them. And I kind of had to work, uh, I had to learn this the hard way in some respects because, you know, coming out of BGI and knowing that certain things are possible, I was originally approaching different clients, like meet me where I am because, you know, like you're stuck in the mud, (laughs) but I kind of got, you know, I had some very loving team members say, Stace, they don't think like you. You got to meet them where they are and move them along to grasp more sophisticated ways of thinking about impact reduction. I think that's a great analogy. It's you're the tow truck and you have to go to them. You can't sit at the auto station waiting for them to come to you. (laughs) Exactly. I'm open for business. Who's coming? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You know, what's fascinating about this framework of yours, especially in the light of this recommitment after working for 10 years and, you know, 10 years is a long time to push a vision and to push a passion through. How has your recommitment process been going in terms of your personal health relative to these pushing these three points? Oh, man. I Well, I had a full-on health crisis as I got this initiative off the ground. It was crazy. Like As the business started taking off, there was a direct inverse relationship with my health. I've read a lot of articles that people who are working on world-changing technologies often have this inverse reaction. So I had to go back through and kind of de-thread some of the, almost depersonalize some of the work that I was doing and, you know, not take it on or let it stay inside my physical body the way that I was. You know, I was really holding on to rejection. There's so much rejection with this job being a CEO. I mean, get rejected 20 times in a day. If one person says yes, it's a good day, but there's a lot of rejection involved and I would take it so personally and it was, it was hurting me physically. Physically. So I had to work through that. Yeah, I think the overlooked story of entrepreneurship is just how much of a personal journey it is, in addition to a business journey of gaining that sense of confidence. Yes, I'm very pro leadership and personal development. So I firmly believe that we can only grow as much as we're willing to grow. And wherever you find a wall, that's where a major limitation exists and you need people to help you over those limitations. So I have an incredible network of mentors that I work with actively and I work with two coaches on a weekly basis to get through some of those personal and professional challenges. I think people talk about it as building a team. I sometimes like to think about it as collecting people as you go through life. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> Can you give us a briefing, a primer of how the textile and fashion supply chain works so that way we can get a sense of where you and Evernew fits in? 
Ooh, that is a big question because the supply chain is massive. So I'll give you a sliver into to give you some visibility around how our tech fits into the specific supply chain. All raw materials start with fiber. There are 17 generic fibers on the planet. We have in our IP portfolio new generics in development, which is really exciting. The majority of the market is polyester. Then the next big one is cotton. So between poly and cotton, that's roughly, I don't know, it it flutters 85 to 90% of the market. So, and then everything else is shares that 15 to 20%. And we're talking fibers. We're talking natural fibers like cotton, maybe hemp, maybe textiles, linen, something like that. And then the synthetics would be the polyesters. Nope, it's just poly. So just poly, okay. Just poly. So the polyester market is roughly 60% of the global market. Cotton alone is roughly 30%. So that's 90. And then everything else is 10%. That's all of the bast fibers, your hemp, linen, flax, your synthetics, your nylon, your stretches, silk, everything else shares 10%. So the big boys are cotton and polyester. I envision a future in which both of these fibers were not in an all or nothing world. People always say, oh, you're trying to put cotton out of business or you're trying to put polyester out of business. First of all, I'm not a dummy. I would never say that ever because, um, you know, we'd go missing if we said things like that. It's not an all or nothing world. It's really about intelligent design. For the virgin materials that we do use, we've got to have a way to regenerate those materials to keep them in circulation for more iterations. So as population increase grows, we've got a supply chain or a pipeline available to feed into the textile industry and other industries as well. So that's that's the entry point is fiber. Then it gets turned into yarn and then it gets turned into apparel. Brands and retailers buy those garments and they sell them to customers. One of the interesting things about the apparel business model is we are going around the world trying to figure out how to make the cheapest product possible so that we can throw it away. And then next year we have to comp. So we are looking for cheaper product so we can throw it away. And I think COVID kind of illustrating or illuminating some of the flaws around the model. It's just like, we clearly see that there's a bottom here and you can, there's no real sustainable growth if you intend to build virgin materials and throw them away. There's just, that's not how we're going to be doing things in, in the second half of the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, there's so much focus on single-use plastics, but yet there's so many other material items we have, which are single use and certainly clothing and some of the work that you're doing is targeting other single use materials and single use. Exactly. So it goes from fibers to yarn. Um, Yarn is when they're using the looms, like now large mechanical looms and not the hand looms that we think of in fairy tales to be able to come up with these sheets of fabric, right? Well, actually yarn is uh, spinning different fibers together. So When we spin different fibers together, one of the important considerations is we have to understand what we're blending with because the cross-sectional shape and the staple length, the length of the fibers have to be compatible. If you have incompatibilities, you start spinning, the ventricle force will move one fiber to the outside and one fiber to the inside, and then you have a weak yarn and things break. So getting really good blending 
and compatibility profiles is a critical part of yarn spinning. But yarn spinning is the process of taking the fiber and spinning it into yarn. So you can take it to the loom and weave it, or you can take it to the knitter and knit it, knit with it. So, gotcha. so yeah. even there, there's a couple of different steps. The fiber is just the raw material, the yarn, you turn them into yarn, and then you yep. go to the knitting to create the sheets. Yep. And then from the sheets then goes to the apparel where you, it becomes the clothes and it becomes yep. the textiles on the other Correct. side. Correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. And obviously then after the apparel, there's the waste part, which is then where you as ever knew fits yep. in. Sure. Right. Yes. But can you describe how you fit into then that apparel waste? Yeah. So on the business side, so, you know, brands and retailers right now, when they plan a buy, they don't know what's going to sell well and what's not going to sell well. So they're trying to go after the consumer and what they're doing is they're essentially cost averaging their businesses. So they're saying, okay, if I get, you know, let's say 50% of this buy is going to be at full margin sales, I'm going to start marking down and 25% will be marked down. And then the other 25% will be liquidated. We're writing off cost. So they're cost averaging their business. And this is really the big 10,000 pound gorilla in the room because, you know, this is a big industry that has a flawed business model. So our approach here is, okay, what if we actually built products that took into account all of the externalities to global air, water, soil, and trees, and we adequately valued the raw materials and we paid more and we trained consumers to pay more for products And then if the brand or retailer is in a situation where they have a dog on their hand and they can't give it away, rather than having them send that to landfill, which they have to pay for destruction and disposal, have them use that as an asset that they sell back to the supply chain. But again, if customer is king and we're building things that deeply resonate with consumers, our job, my job is to improve full margin sales. Everybody wins if we are selling at full margin. Yes, everybody wins. And yet, when we start thinking about that, you're connecting two parts of the system, which is currently not connected. And for all intents and purposes, what that means is you're changing the system. And you're creating is a new system loop, a new system feedback loop. How then do you piecemeal this system to come together? Because you're talking about different players that today don't interact with each other. Totally. And this is like the, I mean, this is my day job. So, you know, we're getting waste owners tied into pulping mills, pulping mills tied into fiber producers, fiber producers then pick up with yarn spinners. And that's kind of where this existing supply chain resides between fiber and cut and sew. So, you know, we're linking the existing waste supply chain to the existing paper pulping supply chain for our first technology, training paper pulping mills to make pulp out of cotton garment waste instead of timber. So that's really where the first real node is around that new intervention, because right now the pulp mills only buy timber. They don't buy cotton waste from waste owners. So that's part of what we're working on right now. But, you know, it's interesting because when you look at this system, you know, you've got waste owners, pulp mills, fiber producers, yarn spinners, knitters, weavers, cut and sew operations, brands and retailers, and then the consumer gets the product. 
So there's no visibility around how, so the waste owners and the pulp mills have no visibility. The fiber producers don't even know what products their fibers are going into. So there's no visibility around where's this stuff going? How is it doing? How are people responding? It's very transactional. And I think that that's part of when you look at systems intervention, one of our jobs is to bring all of the stakeholders together and give end-to-end visibility to all of the players so that they have closure. They understand where their products are going, how they're being made, and then how the consumer is responding and resonating to that product. When you see efforts like Puma with their environmental profit and loss statement, where they've been trying to connect, they call them tier one to tier four suppliers, going back to the raw materials. What's your reflection on that approach of looking at the entire supply chain? I look at tier one through six. So we're looking at, because we're working with waste, waste being kind of the lowest common denominator, if we're getting that garment back in whatever form, whether it's unworn or worn, pre or post-consumer, the holy grail is to be able to break down and repolymerize everything that we create. And that's really what we're focusing on. If we can close that circuit and create closed circuit supply systems, in theory, we should be able to keep our industry really moving forward at a healthy clip. What you're telling me is that even at the yarn stage, they're already starting to mix material. Yep. It's an intimate blend when they do that. Yep. And so how does that affect the entire recycling process and reclamation process that you're working on? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we can separate any fiber and depolymerize any fiber in our lab, cotton, poly, nylon, stretch, everything. Can we repolymerize them and economically? So if I can do it for $20, $30 a pound, great, good job, Stace, but who's going to buy it? Especially when the comp, the market's crashed, and right now, poly is in the 60 or below 60 cents a pound. It comes down to how do the economics work? And I always say, startups don't die from a lack of great ideas. Startups die from the inability to monetize one of their great ideas. So with our team here at Evernew, we're staying focused on commercializing just one technology, show that we have a really strong technology platform and a strong technology process. We have the ability to scale through a licensing model and create revenue through the licensing model. And we're bringing together the end-to-end stakeholder group and giving visibility so that we've got end-to-end compatibility, all with the goal to deeply resonate with the consumer through strong storytelling around impact reduction and how this is now the new standard. We're now starting to recycle their clothes and we're going to let the consumer decide what they want and let the consumer create the demand for these kinds of technologies. And then eventually our goal is essentially we're building a technology farm. We want to exit these technologies to people who can scale them globally. Some of the technologies in our portfolio, we have no intent of ever commercializing. So those can go at any time, but the ones that we do commercialize and we drive strong consumer value, we we're looking for strong partners that can uphold that around the world. And so basically you're selling a R&D pipeline to yes. these, to the apparel companies, to the textile companies, 
Yeah. So it could be the pulping. It could be the waste owners. It could be the pulping mills. It could be the fiber producers. The fiber producers that make fiber from wood pulp, 50% of their pulp is produced internally, created Mm -hmm. internally. So they have, they already have a kind of a vertical system and then they buy the other half roughly from the open market. So it could be on tech one, it could be a variety of people. It could even be a major brand or retailer that wants to just, you know, that has the ability to scale and influence the supply chain. So uh, we're staying open to what the actual exits look like, but our job is not just, again, I'm not a transactional person. This is where people get very frustrated with me because I'm not looking for kind of a hit it and quit it sale. I want to sell them today's generation. And then we're in the lab working on next gen solutions. And I want them to come to us for the next gen solution when they're ready to upgrade and modernize if they've got to make investments to scale. That's really the goal is to get them into safer, cleaner, more effective ways of working and start decommissioning the damaging technologies. Again, it's selling that entire system. And for the much more transactional entrepreneur, it's very hard to be able to see, but selling systems change means you have to sell system solutions. Exactly. Which is hard for people who don't live in a systems framework. Exactly. Now, when you take a step back and you look globally now, what is the risk that the textile system is imposing on the other systems? So the risk that the textile system is imposing on other systems. So this is with the deployment of new technology. Or is it existing tech? How about the existing tech? I think the future tech is a trend. And I'd love your opinion about the trend as well. I don't think people realize how much, how toxic the textile system is. I mean, let's just look at fiber. When you look at the water usage required to grow cotton, as water scarcity goes up, cotton pricing is going to be pegged to diverting some of that water to humans. It requires about 700 gallons of water to make one t-shirt. And some of that's in cultivation, some of it's in dyeing and finishing, but end to end, that's roughly what the EPA says. Then on the polyester side, polyester is a byproduct of crude oil. So you've got to pull it from the earth's crust. The energy required to do that is massive. And then yarn spinning, we've got yarn spinning uses a tremendous amount of energy. Dyeing and finishing uses a lot of water, chemicals, auxiliaries, those kinds of things. You're using polymetallics and dyes as well, which is really tough to decolor products. So that's got to be redesigned. And then when you look at the cut waste is a direct impact to your cost. So the fact that we're knitting and weaving in rectangles and where the body is shaped. So you're always going to have cut waste until you redesign the cut layout or the way that you're knitting or weaving. And then you've got your, all of the damn packaging involved with the hang tags, labels, the individual poly bags, the blister bags, the cartons, all of it has certain specifications to make it easier when it gets into the DC, but it's a ton of packaging that's all either plastic bags, single-use plastic, single-use cotton, whatever, single-use blend. It's a massive, massive pipeline that we're, we're looking at here. People don't really realize like the impact 
of the apparel industry on global air, water, soil, and trees. And I try not to highlight the negative pieces because I feel like you can go and read and there are a lot of people, you know, talking about the blame and shame and the negative aspects. I've never known that to be a catalyst to get people to move. So I talk about the opportunities for change secretly focusing on how do I move people to safer methods with the intent to alleviate some of the pressure to global air, water, soil, and trees. But I don't lead with that. Absolutely. I mean, what you're getting at is most people don't realize the amount of resources that it takes for that entire supply chain we've just talked about, going from the fibers all the way to the apparel and waste. It's not just the physical embodiment of the t-shirt I'm wearing, but it's the amount of vendors, the amount of resources it takes to get that entire supply chain to work. Yep, absolutely. And we've done over the last 20 years, so it's been so fascinating. When I was at FIT in the 90s in New York, I remember sitting in a lecture hall and learning about the fast fashion business model that Inditex had put together. Apparently, someone very high up in the company worked for the dairy industry, and they applied the same business model to fashion as had been applied to milk. So it's got a shelf life. You've got to turn it. You've got to have quick turn strategies. And it changed our entire industry. And we had a major heyday. People were making so much money with this quick turn because consumers had access to whatever they wanted. If you had a a date night, you could go out and get something cute to wear. You didn't care if it fell apart because you could just buy something new the next week, something we were always bringing in newness to show the consumer that there was always something to buy and consumers were eating it up because it was priced in a way where it was accessible to a wide group of people. You know, women like to shop, you know, it's, it's a form of therapy. We exploited that for sure. I love the analogy to the milk sector. I don't think many people know milk is actually a push market. <laughs> yeah. It's not a pull market. Uh, yeah. Push in terms of it's a demand that pushed out. If you don't consume it, it you pour it down the drain. So it's right. priced and it's designed to be a push market. Yes, exactly. And fast fashion is designed to be a push market. It is a push versus market. Versus a yes. demand pull market. Correct, correct. And that's really, you know, like systemically when we look at, you know, what drives consumer behavior, there's another example. In the early 2000s, diesel jeans convinced women that their butts looked better in their jeans. Now, overnight, the 5950 Gap jeans that women were buying were no longer acceptable because your butt looked better in the $98 jean. And the market moved immediately to the diesel gene at that time. So this is how the industry works. It is once a trend is set, once the new standard is available, it moves very quickly and very abruptly and makes the business model pretty fragile. If you've got a business that you're depending on selling at that 59.50, you've got a comp to hit to you know improve your numbers from last year and then you've got this threat of a new product coming in and taking your market share that's how this game works is you go after consumer resonance and market share and you migrate people toward products based on trends let's take that thought and expand on it through the lens of innovation we've talked about how deep inside the supply chain it is a highly conservative sector because the margins are so low They don't want to make a change. 
yet at that consumer layer, it is fast fashion. It changes every week, every two weeks. Yep. And the innovation seems to be skyrocketing beyond compare. Do you think that innovation is misplaced? I absolutely think innovation is misplaced. I mean, you look at the fashion industry. I mean, all of the trends really come from the designers and the runway shows. When you look at those runway shows, it is the epitome of innovation. It is the epitome of culture. You know, it's the self-expression through dress and style. And that's how we've expressed ourselves since the beginning of time, through what we wear and how we wear it. So the fashion industry is on the surface, incredibly innovative. But the back-end supply chain, this is my opinion, over the last 20 years has been run by bean counters and attorneys, and we're looking for the money and we're looking to protect our asses. We've gotten out of the practice of good design on the actual supply chain and fulfillment side because we've known that we should have been investing somewhere in the range of $10 billion per year for the last 10 years. The sustainability issues in the apparel industry are not new. People at very high levels have known that this is a problem, and they chose not to invest in the supply chain innovation. They chose to pump the system. So now we're in in a situation where it's obvious we've got to make some changes, and there's no capital to make the changes. So yeah, technology is absolutely misplaced. And I see this as, you know, the biggest problems are also the greatest opportunities if you can re-engineer and redesign them. So I'm going after it for the next 20 years. We're going to hit it pretty hard on the redesign side. We hear of these conservative sectors all the time. I work in the energy sector and utilities are conservative. We look at some of the mechanical contractors doing energy efficiency and we hear of them being really conservative. Oil and gas is conservative. Why do you think the textile supply chain is so conservative? Well, the further down, like when you get into tier five, tier six suppliers, they're very low margin. You know, it's all about efficiency. It's all about economies of scale. It's all about the pennies and the nickels and the dimes. They have got to manage efficiencies. So that's really where the the biggest level of anxiety is, is they're looking for things that are super efficient. I'll give you an example. We're, we're working with suppliers right now that we've got a really strong technical team. Technical people do not want to move until things are 100% perfect. And then in comes Stacy Flynn, and I'm like, 40% is good enough. Like, we need to move. We'll make it 100%, but you can't make it 100% until you bring your, all of your stakeholders on board. Because if you deliver something that's 100% baked to your stakeholders and they've had no input into the process, what ends up happening in my experiences is they kind of get frustrated and they find something to talk about or they find a flaw. When if you bring them into the failure, they have the opportunity to work on the solution with you, and then you're bringing all of your partners along at the same rate. I am an engineer, so I can say this about engineers. The engineer wants to move forward at 100%, but we've got to move forward, you know, 20, 30, 40% success and iterate to get it up to 100 over time. I think that's a great analogy. There's two different ways to get to 100%. You can do it through a research lab in private, or you can do it by sharing your failures in public. 
and one is the way of the entrepreneur, one is the way of the engineer, they can both get to that 100%, but it's a very different comfort level of how you get to that 100%, right? Definitely. And this is where I have so much respect for my partner, Christo, because Christo is, I mean, he's a magician around problem solving. And, you know, he, once a problem comes, he like approaches the problem, like, okay, now we, we don't know what we don't know. He's always saying, but as soon as we do know, now we can find a solve. Let's describe that stakeholder engagement. You're bringing together the system in a way that has never been brought together. What type of stakeholder engagement do you find you need to partake in? Yeah, you know, I'll I'll start with our <laughs> our early adopter brand partners. We got our brand partners through their product integrity testing, which is not an easy feat. It's not to be underestimated. You've got to go through rigorous testing to get through product integrity. And because we built so much product, we were able to really go through that process pretty efficiently. Once we got through and passed QA, I proposed to my partner, Christo, I was like, I want to invite Selma McCartney, Levi's and Adidas all into Seattle. And I want to ask them all to support us with a commercial launch and to commit to purchase orders. And Carissa was like, nope, that is like, that feels like inviting all your ex-girlfriends into one room. This could go very badly, Stacy." And I was like, no, we're all working on the same goal. They're not competitors. And there's a tremendous amount of camaraderie when you bring people together. This is bigger than any one company. It's bigger than any one person. We've got to show that we are coming together and we're building alignment on this go-to-market strategy for a reason. So that's one example of stakeholder engagement where we pulled our all of our early adopters together. They all supported us with purchase orders around the same time. And we were able to secure a, a pretty significant round of capital as a result of that strategy. So now we're in the process of, on the commercial side, now that we have purchase orders, we've got to pull the commercial uh, scaling partners together in a similar way. You know, the waste owners, pulping mills, fiber producers, so that, you know, everybody understands the end-to-end system. And we're ideally giving them visibility into the brand retail work and giving them some closure around where their products are actually going. This is a question from Suzanne Singer, one of the other podcast guests. How do women entrepreneurs overcome the challenges of finding funding? (laughs) Oh, my God. I think the first thing that I had to get over was this feeling of imposter syndrome. When you're an entrepreneur, you have to sell something that hasn't yet fully been done or maybe hasn't been done at all. You're selling a vision. And women are, in my opinion, we like to go in and say, okay, you know, give the real deal. Like, here's what the vision is, but here's where we are. And here's, you know, likely where we're going to go. Men walk into a room and they say, my success is inevitable. And they instill confidence immediately in themselves. And as a result, they get the funding because that's what the VCs want to see. They want to see that confidence. Women have to earn that confidence. It's a different process. And I think that when you're working with female entrepreneurs, 
we work differently than men. And where I've found the most incredible synergy is when men and women are paired up because they have vitally different perspectives around the same problem and two different approaches. And if men and women can appreciate and understand each other's perspective, I don't have to be like my partner, Cristo. He's got that covered. He's got that down. I had to learn how to be myself and how to really own what I brought to the table and could do better than anybody in the world. And that was partly one of the biggest learning curves I've had in my life is standing and gaining that confidence and going in front of investors was not easy. It was a bloodbath actually in the beginning. I would be patted on the head like, you know, what do you know about the textile industry, Stacy? Like, you're so cute. Like, like, do not patronize me. Like, 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 it was really hard, really hard, but you had to earn. I mean, you know, when I worked at DuPont, Target, Eddie Bauer, I had credentials. I earned those credentials. When I started this company, I started over and had to earn all of that over time. It is tough because there's a lot of rejection, a lot of misunderstanding around how women think if you're working with men. I do have a trick though. I learned something really valuable and I learned that a no is not necessarily a hard no. It is a not right now. Once I made that switch and I kept them informed around our progress, it was almost personal getting them to come into the financing round, you know, and many times I was successful at converting investors after I had brought them into the conversation, kept them informed, brought them into the family and developed a relationship with them. And if I couldn't get them to invest, I could at least develop enough rapport and a strong enough relationship to call them up and say, who do you know that would be a good fit? And they get out their contacts and make really warm introductions. So it's again, getting back to collecting good people through your life. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think women have a really strong intuition. And that is probably one of the biggest assets that I possess because we've been able to navigate some really choppy water as a result of things just not feeling right. Can't really put our finger on it. We have no quantitative information, there's no evidence. It's just a feeling. Creso doesn't pick up on feelings. He's like, just give me the data. Like, I'm going to see what's in front of me, but I'm not going to pick up on those nuances. They say out of 100 emotions, women can pick up on 95. Men can pick up on about five, typically. Anger, fear, those kinds of being the strongest for men. But women have this ability to pick up on these nuanced senses that can really be strong assets as you're growing and starting a business. Where do you turn to for new information? Oh, gosh. You know, I recently, and I do this with magazines and I do this with books. I have a collection. I probably have more books than I should. I buy a lot of books. And when I rearrange my library, I I like to arrange my books by topic and by color. You know, so it, it looks good, you know, on the shelf. And then after a while, I go through my bookshelf and I'm like, okay, which books here have I not read? And I'll pull out some business books. I'll pull out some, you know, leadership books. I'll pull out some spiritual books and I'll have my cross section of books and I'll just go through the, the chapter page and I'll find chapters that resonate and I'll look at that chapter and then I'll go to the 
other book, I'll find something that resonates. And it sounds crazy, but I have figured out how to put together so many interesting frameworks by cross-referencing different topics from the library I have and from different magazines and stuff. So, you know, the way I describe this is, you know, we're all classically trained as MBAs. You know, you have to go through a specific protocol. And then I like to hack it. I like to tailor it for us and really redesign it so that it feels good and it functions well for us. Sometimes it doesn't work, but most of the time it's just gives new breadth, new energy, new perspective to to myself and to the team so that we can take on whatever we've got in front of us. What's the latest book you've read? Oh, I've got seven right here. Um, (laughs) Let me see. You know, I actually, it's funny. One of my colleagues introduced me to Ram last week. I talked to him in India. It's called The Attacker's Advantage. And I bought this book because I hated the title. I was like, you know, is this perpetuating a war? If we're going to, we want to give peace a chance. Why are we using titles like The Attacker's Advantage? But after I read it, this book is full of really profound stories. And I even talked with Ram and it's interesting. I feel like maybe someone on his team helped him with the title to promote book sales. But, um, you know, the book is all about how you innovate and how you navigate uncertainty. It's not done from a perspective of violence or war. It's done from a place of peace, which I appreciated. As you reflect back on your career, what brings you optimism about climate action? I hope that it can't get any worse. I hope now we've reached critical mass around there's enough critical mass that's aware of the problem and we're now going to start moving things in in the other direction. I think, you know, in the beginning of my career and personally, you know, we're in business to make money. And now with the climate change, it's not enough to just make money. You've got to make money and cut your impact. So it's adding a new layer of complexity And I just feel like the generations that are coming behind us aren't going to take no for an answer on that. And that's what I'm preparing myself for. I'm preparing to provide some strong leadership around so that we can hand off whatever we've been building to the next generation and let them take it into the second half of the 21st century. What are some unexpected collaborations you find yourself in? It's really hard for me to say that collaborations are unexpected because we've even gone to some of the greatest offenders and found that they were scared. They don't know what to do. They don't have any answers. They need some help and they have been warmer than you would think in terms of collaborating. So I think maybe in the past, I thought relationships might be challenging, but I've found for the most part, if we find alignment on the bigger reason why we're collaborating, that it supersedes any potential issue. So we've tamed some pretty big mastodons. I'm surprised that it wasn't harder to do that. 
But again, you know, I, I don't take no for an answer either. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I am classically trained at capturing large markets. I've got a, you know, I've got the first half of my year, I, I helped cause the problem. So when I go into these big companies, you realize like the individuals are looking for solutions to get behind because they're using their personal energy to advance something that they don't believe in. And that's really where we get the biggest headwinds. When you mentor early professionals, what common challenges do you see them facing and what do you do to advise them? Well, you know, for young women and girls, confidence is a really big factor. I heard a statistic today, actually, that girls' confidence goes down pretty significantly once they hit grammar school and then even more once they get out of high school. I heard a statistic that the majority of women do not believe their dreams can come true. And to me, I'm just, that really upsets me. I would say that we all have a unique perspective. No one can see what we see. No one can know what we know really. If someone says no, if someone gives you a hard time, my experience has been, that's a great indication that you're on the right road. Fantastic. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for joining us again and yeah. giving us this insight and feedback. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change. Thank you.